0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Year Ahead podcast, a special series where we'll be exploring the big themes behind the outlook for 2023. I'm your host, Gavin Shear, Emerging Market Strategist in Singapore. And today we'll be talking about the outlook for the global oil market, how this impacts the regional and global views on growth and policy, and what this might mean for the energy transition. Uh, on this episode today, we'll be joined by a truly global panel: our resident oil watcher Brian Dangerfield, the head of G 10s FX Strategy Americas in the U.S., uh, and of course, Emo Daly, emerging markets macro strategist in the U.K. So let's start off with a couple of questions. Um, Brian, you know, from the big picture, you know, the macro angle, what's going to be the macro backdrop for energy next year? You know, w- what are some of the big themes that we might be uh, coming to expect?
1: Well, thank you very much, Galvin, and thank you, everyone, for joining. So uh, the, when you think about the macro environment, it's certainly looking like 2023 is going to be a more challenging backdrop from an oil and energy demand perspective. You think about the difference between 2022 when we were heading into 2022, and now monetary policy had not begun to be tightened in any meaningful way in a number of major economies, and we were still sort of coming out of the lockdowns um, from the post-pandemic period in a lot of places. And so the growth outlook heading into 2022 and with it, the outlook for oil and energy demand was quite strong. Now, as we head into 2023, we've seen a much different environment from the macro perspective. When you think about energy demand. Now we've seen a tremendous amount of tightening from a number of central banks. You've seen inflation stay persistently high across a number of economies. That's weight on growth expectations. It's weight on real incomes. Uh, It's weighed on discretionary spending and also consumer confidence as well. And certainly the tightening we've seen has weighed on interest rate sensitive sectors across a number of economies. And so that combination has led to a much more challenging macro environment from an oil and energy demand perspective. You know, we think about in strong growth environments, industrial production is improving. There's demand for travel. There's demand for uh, services. That's the kind of environment that's going to lead to higher demand for energy and for really all commodities but instead it looks like we're heading towards an environment where growth is set to uh, to moderate further and even contract in some major economies and so from that perspective you think about this supply demand imbalance we've been facing in energy markets globally heading into 2022 the demand side of the coin was really pushing that imbalance further if anything the demand side was really uh, very very positive and supply was really struggling to keep up. I think as we move into 2023, we're talking about maybe a more balanced picture where demand is not nearly as strong. It's starting to moderate, but we still have problems on the supply side. I think it's still fair to say that we have insufficient supply and certainly some of the geopolitical factors that we're gonna talk about in this podcast have really played a role in reinforcing those shortages. And so from the macro perspective, I think it's clear that the demand environment is likely to be worse than it was in 2022, but I'm not sure that means that we should expect energy prices to fall substantially because we still have this imbalance on the supply side.
0: Right. So you mentioned sort of, yeah, like it's very interesting because We're talking about, you know, this transition between 2022, 2023, and given, you know, 2022 was such a momentous year for for so many different markets and for so many different, you know, countries and economies around the world, right? You know, we obviously had oil and gas markets rocked by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And of course, as you mentioned just now, there continue to be these lingering worries about uh, insufficient energy supply. Um, But many economists and market watchers are also, you know, we're hearing, incessant talk about a recessionary environment that's coming and that's that's going to be weighing on global demand. It's going to be weighing on the global uh, economic outlook. What's that? What do you think that's going to mean for energy markets, Brian?
1: I think you've hit upon maybe the core conflict in energy markets right now is that there is a macro environment that's telling you that oil and energy demand is likely to be lower. But then as you look at the micro environment, especially from the supply side, you struggle to find uh, evidence that you've seen real material shift in this core imbalance where there's simply not enough supply of goods. And you think about, you know, we'll touch on this uh, in more depth when we get to to EMER, but discussing the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Western sanctions on Russia that have resulted have led to Western economies essentially trying to diversify away from Russian energy products. And so that's created effectively localized shortages where um, economies across West, uh, across, especially in Europe, Um, have paid tremendously to try and shore up supplies um, ahead of the winter. So you have this micro environment where you've lost, especially for Western economies, maybe not the global economy, because China and India have played a role in absorbing some of that Russian supply. But from from a European and Western economy perspective, you've had these shortages. At the same time, there should be expectations around oil supply increases coming from OPEC and the U.S. and others, that's probably going to have to be ratcheted down. Recently, back in October, OPEC changed its strategy. It's now in price defense mode. It's no longer increasing uh, its oil production quotas. Instead, it's most recently cut its oil production quotas. That signal from OPEC is likely that they're going to be on the defensive, instead trying to support prices rather than increase market share. So that's a pretty significant change. And that speaks to that macro environment that we were talking about. OPEC is trying to get ahead of an expected slowdown. And when we think about investments in uh, oil and gas projects, which is pretty important for supply growth as we look several years down the road, those decisions are not necessarily being made on current prices. Instead, they have to take future prices and future demand into account. And so what we have seen, and this isn't just a post-pandemic phenomenon, I think this has been true um, before the pandemic as well, But there's a real question over whether or not investment today uh, is something that's going to be worth it a couple of years down the road. And as you think about, as companies and oil producers are more pessimistic about demand, that's something that could lead to slower investment down the road. And so, you know, you have this environment where the macro picture is uh, is looking to be quite challenging. But at the same time, there's reasons to be pessimistic as well, that we're going to correct the imbalance that we've seen, that supply could still um, undershoot to even a lower demand outlook. And so that could mean that stickier, higher energy prices are here to stay even under a slower growth outlook.
0: Right. So let's just actually go back to something that you mentioned earlier, Brian. Let's maybe zoom in. On some of these differentiated, you know, regional impacts, right? Obviously, oil and energy markets trade globally, uh, but you know the, the way that these energy price shocks and the way that the changes in structural in, in, in demand, economic demand, are going to play out will be different, um, you know, across different regions, right? So, so just turn to you, Imer, I'm just wondering what the impacts are going to be like for you know Russia's neighbors in uh, in Europe and the likes of you know Central and uh, Eastern Europe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The impacts are bad in a nutshell. I do think, you know, that central Eastern European space is basically where the epicenter of this natural gas kind of crisis is. You know, we have seen that, you know, of the five pipelines that directly supply Russian natural gas into Europe. Three are now shut, which means that, you know, both Poland and the Czech Republic have been almost completely cut off from gas. Hungary remains the exception. It's still receiving gas through the um, Turk Stream pipeline, which thankfully doesn't kind of um, Supply natural gas to any other countries that Russia would kind of deem as as enemies or anything like that. So they still have some gas supply, but it is at much lower levels. I think you know the big issue here is that you've removed a massive kind of uh, global supplier of energy from the market, especially in terms of natural gas. You really rely on an infrastructure of this kind of intricate network of gas supply pipelines, which run underneath Europe and underneath. You know the Norway sea in terms of getting that supply to these countries and it's a very long-term project in terms of diversifying that supply away and now you're faced with the alternative of you know if you look for other energy sources they're considerably more expensive
1: yeah,
0: so that really sounds like it's almost like a pan-European project, isn't it? Like you're hearing about high energy prices as far as the UK, you're hearing about high energy prices across continental Europe. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, as you mentioned, we're definitely hearing about, you know, high energy prices and shortages across Central and Eastern Europe as well. Brian, what about in the US? What are some of the impacts that you're thinking about or that you're uh, you know potentially we're going to see there next year?
1: So the maybe the most important difference between the US and in Europe is our geographic location, that there simply is not the same exposure. And that's really been a feature of, I think, the outperformance of the dollar in particular against a number of European currencies is that uh, our energy outlook has not been as significantly impacted. And you could almost say that the US from an energy exporter perspective, I don't wanna say the word benefit, but you know the US has to be an important player in the diversification away from Russia uh, for Western European nations. Um, and so LNG uh, production and exports, for example, um, the and, and oil production as well, that has to be an important part of the future energy story in Europe. And so from a growth perspective, I think the US has ended up as a relative beneficiary and we've seen that play out in currency markets, certainly with the strengthening of the dollar that we've seen. Um, and that's you know, something that, 've seen we've seen that differentiation now the the story for the dollar is one that I think is going to really depend on the Fed um, and relative growth as well as we look into 2023 so you know as we think about those themes of dollar outperformance and relative benefit uh to the U.S from its geographic location and its lower exposure um, the path of energy prices and the path of Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, are going to be pretty critical to the outlook for asset classes and certainly the dollar as well.
0: Yeah, great. I think that that, you know, Brian, you've really um, sort of segue quite well, because I want to change tack a little bit uh, to think about, you know, uh, policy and, you know, how that might be changing in 23, you know, in 22, Fiscal policy, monetary policy, you know, has not had a breather, it's it's kept running, uh, it, it, it's been nonstop, you know, interest rates keep moving uh, higher and higher across the world. So maybe, Ima, um, let's, let's focus on, on your areas first, and, and you know, can you tell us, you know, what will some of the key responses from both the fiscal and monetary angles be like in 2023?
2: Yeah, I think especially for the C3 space, I think, you know, it's been a time where monetary policy has almost been exhausted. I think, you know, similar to the years when we had kind of deflationary concerns, there's, you know, a lower bound to how low interest rate can go. And for a lot of these economies, there's also an upper bound, you know, so we've seen kind of sequentially Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic effectively calling an end to their hiking cycle, or at least pausing, you know, very aggressive hiking cycle and switching tracks, so, you know, Czech Republic public introduced effects uh, intervention. They did in considerable scale. We've had, you know, Hungary, which is kind of pulling these liquidity levers in their economy, making it very hard for currency or currency um, participants to kind of short their currency so they can more ring fence their economy against important inflationary pressures. And Poland also in October kind of paused its rate hiking cycle and has looked at kind of private placement of debt and other kind of initiatives um almost to pivot more um, to unconventional policy um, as they really can't keep um, uh, can keep hiking interest rates to such punitive levels for their domestic economies. In terms of fiscal policy, I think, you know, a lot of these countries have kind of implemented, um, I would say, energy price subsidies. And that's really, they're taking on this energy price risk onto the fiscal balance sheet, uh, which is probably, you know, a problem we'll have to contend with in 2023. And um, they have, you know, had to increase borrowing, but they're doing so uh, to really kind of support their economies, to support households, against extortionate energy prices. I think where the risks are probably the greatest or where we see, you know, coming elections. So for example, in Poland, we've got an election coming up in in um potentially uh, August uh, or sorry, October of next year. Um, and we have seen kind of considerable moves by the central bank or by the government there to support households with um, significant fiscal expansion. And we haven't seen that being well received by um, by their debt markets. They've had massive sell-off in their um, in their local currency debt and yield spiking. Um, so it's certainly a very difficult time for um, for policymakers,
0: Brian, what about in the U.S.? Clearly, you know there isn't as much risk from you know uh, outsized fiscal expansionism or, or, or sort of pump priming, maybe prior to to the elections. But what's it looking like from the fiscal and policy space uh, from, from from the U.S.?
1: Well, the fiscal monetary policy mix looks like it's probably going to have to be uh, mostly monetary and not a lot of fiscal. You know, we are still, you know, as we're recording the results of the U.S. midterm election uh, are still outstanding, but it's looking like that uh, Republicans may have taken control of the House of Representatives. And if that's the case, monetary policy is probably unlikely, excuse me, fiscal policy is probably unlikely uh, to be able to take on any of the burden of higher energy prices uh, onto the fiscal balance sheet, as Emer mentioned, you know, certainly that's something that's been part of the playbook across a number of economies in Europe, trying to take pressure off of consumers and businesses and put it more um, onto the fiscal side. Um, So monetary policy feels like, you know, if we're heading towards a downturn in the U.S., monetary policy may have to play more of a role, but inflation, may prevent the Federal Reserve from being able to do that, and maybe the more interesting angle from that perspective is that services and non-energy inflation is probably gonna be playing a more important role here, because if you just look at futures prices as they are now, as you take some of the year-over-year effects out of inflation calculations uh, from energy moves last year on the uh, at the time of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's looking like delivered inflation from a year-over-year year perspective from the energy side is probably going to come down in a lot of economies. And so energy and inflation uh, is obviously going to be very critical if you start to see some meaningful progress on inflation. Maybe that gives uh, the Federal Reserve and other central banks more confidence that they can start to slow and ultimately pause their tightening cycles. But you know, from a consumer perspective, from a growth perspective, even if inflation uh you know year over year inflation is low individuals still pay for gasoline they still pay for food um and higher prices is something that could still potentially weigh on consumer sentiment and, and demand as well and so we think energy prices and energy price inflation but the overall inflation picture as well I think is going to be very important to think about as we consider will monetary authorities have flexibility to slow or pause the relentless pace of tightening that they've had to do to try and keep inflation under control. We know energy and commodity prices are very important uh, in that discussion.
0: So it sounds really like a lot of these authorities really have their hands tied going into 2023, you know, thinking about the upper bounds of monetary policy, thinking about where these sources of inflation, and maybe thinking about, you know, the, the market impacts and and central bank policy credibility, you know, it all seems like it's really starting to come ahead. And it does really sound like it's gonna be a, a fairly challenging tight road to walk uh, as we enter uh, the new year. But I mean, let's think about, I, I'd like to sort of ask you both about the potential about uh, impacts on, you know, not just these these um, sort of financial markets in 2023, but also thinking about, you know, the state of play about the sustainable energy transition, right, like that's a consistent theme uh, that, that's that been, you know, that, that we've seen uh, throughout, you know, in, ma- in many, many sources uh, o- over the last couple of years, right? And, and obviously with this huge supply shock that we saw in 2022, you know, how does that impact the transition to, you know, uh, lower carbon, more sustainable uh, energy sources? I wonder maybe, Brian, if you could kick off with some of your thoughts on that.
1: Well, sure. I think uh, the war in Ukraine, I think, has brought out, um uh Vo- vocal defenders of the transition and vocal critics of the transition as well with the critics essentially saying that the the war and the subsequent shortages that we've seen have increased the need for energy security at home. So what that means is for, uh, for us in the US is more oil production, more gas production, um, lower barriers for investment in new projects, um, Lower government oversight, that kind of uh, that kind of impulse, basically saying that the energy transition away from fossil fuels is happening at a time when fossil fuels are needed more than ever to cover for the shortfalls from hostile, you know, from from loss of supply from what we would consider hostile nations. But you know, there's another side of that coin, as we know, which is that this invasion has made the transition. Uh, more the, the the argument that the transition is needed is maybe more obvious than ever uh, for exactly that reason that uh, one of the great ways to diversify away from energy sources that are controlled by uh you know hostile nations would be to improve energy infrastructure at home and that could include and should include uh, alternate and cleaner energy sources and so, investment in those uh in those types of technologies is something that could reduce our reliance on uh foreign sources of energy not just for the US but for global economies. And so from that perspective, I think you've seen two sides of this argument maybe speaking, uh trying to speak to each other and sending different messages about the same conflict. Um, and I think that dichotomy may continue through next year. Um, but I think you know, I certainly lean towards uh, this being uh, a, a clear reason why uh, preparing for and investing in uh, the transition away f- uh, uh, you know, away from fossil fuels and towards cleaner energy uh, is more important now than ever.
0: And IMO, I mean, the EU definitely has the you know energy transition and sustainable energy uh, as one of its you know top uh, priorities, right? Uh, what's your take on this?
2: Yeah, I would agree with Brian. I think, you know, in the short term, it definitely is negative in terms of, you know, we've seen kind of out of desperation, a number of countries kind of reverting to high carbon emission fuels. But I think in the long term, it's positive because it does underline the importance of having your own source of generation and more and more that is um, that is renewable energy. Um, you know, we've kind of seen some sad realities on the ground. I know in Poland, for example, there's stories that they're actively kind of burning rubbish in homes to stay warm. And, you know, as well as that being desperately sad, I think it's also a high carbon emission. Um, You know, we've seen South Africa have incredible demand for its coal output and and some authorities there kind of reinforcing the message that, you know, actually this is a a reason for us to stay in the coal industry and to keep uh, mining coal. Um, But, and I'd also say, I I know, Brian touched on this before, that for emerging markets in particular, right now is a very hard time to get investment into renewables, into new kind of um, energy infrastructure because interest rates are so punitively high. And I think also, you know, these are very long-term projects. They're five to 10 years in terms of your eventual output. And investors want to see a return in one to two years. So I think there's a number of factors in the short term which will probably hold back that move into more renewables. But in the long term, you know, I I think we have really kind of underpinned the point that you need to have a diversified source of energy, and more and more your own kind of domestic generation. And for a lot of economies, that is definitely renewables. Um, and I also think environmental environmentalism has seen so much momentum. And even in this environment where we're facing energy shortfalls, it continues to have momentum. Economies continue to be held it's their environment commitments. So I don't think this is anything, you know, where we. see a significant reversal of any of the progress made.
1: Well, Galvin, if I could actually jump back in here, uh, I would like to ask you about one potential source of energy in 2023, which is China. As an EM strategist yourself covering Asia, we know that China is obviously very critical to the outlook and there's been a lot of speculation in the market about the timing and pace of China's emergence from its zero COVID strategy. It certainly feels like, We think about energy demand, where could there be upside to demand? Maybe that's a region if there's a swift reopening from zero COVID. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on China's economy in 2023, uh, as that's such an important part of the energy backdrop.
0: Yeah, sure, Brian. Thanks. Uh, what a surprise! No, I think as you guys have both mentioned, you know yourself and Emu included, it, it, there's sort of two components to this. So one of this is obviously sort of the cyclical component, or, or where does the economy go, and how does that influence uh, energy demand, you know, from the economy as as a baseline. And the second really important, compo- really important component, I think, is is the impact of policy, and how does you know these policy levers, where possible, try to shape uh, that outlook. Uh, and try to shape, you know, the where where energy investment goes and where it sources uh, its energy supply. So I think let's maybe we can tackle each one of those uh, in turn. So obviously, in terms of the economic outlook, so much of this really hinges on, you know, as you mentioned, COVID zero, uh, how economic activity continues to be uh constrained by that but but actually you know how recent signals uh you know from from the media and about some of the speculation is basically suggesting to us that you know the the, the bulk you know the the, the worst part of, of uh of covid zero uh is is already behind us right so i think you know our perspective from our perspective you know we think that the uh, the economy starts you know gradually starts opening up from about q1 but that's going to be a very very gradual process that allows throughout the year. And so I think from there, you know, uh, because growth was so uh, suppressed uh, throughout the course of this year, you are sort of mechanically, you know, by, almost by, by default, right? You're gonna see a pickup uh, in, in, into sort of, you know, uh, uh, Q2 uh, and, and the rest of the year, right? And so I think on that basis, you can definitely expect some of the energy demand for China to start to pick up again. I think particularly as well, you know, in terms of their growth mix, their growth policy and their emphasis on where they want to put their money into, whether they want, they, how they want, you know, uh, the, 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 the sectoral drivers of, of growth in China, we we think that that's probably going to shift to something like uh, infrastructure development, right, and and potentially some household consumption as well. But I think the infrastructure development angle, of course, you know that that's going to require energy, that's going to require you know primary energy sources and secondary energy sources. So That's going to provide a, a sort of natural uplift to to global energy demand. But I think that being said, you know, on balance, though, you know, we're probably we we think that the base case scenario seems to be one where you know, um, this sort of uh, increase is sort of weighed by a still fairly conservative and, and cautious approach to stimulating the economy. So I think in terms of the balance of global supply and demand levers, uh, you might see, you know, I think the the, the sort of the global downturn, you know, the, 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 the easing off of global demand start to weigh a little bit more than, you know, the uplift provided uh, by China in terms of uh, the demand there. So that's that, you know, uh, sort of cyclical angle thinking about the policy angle I, I, as you guys have all you know rightly mentioned right 2022 really brought so much into the focus questions about energy security about you know the sustainability of of energy uh, supply and i think from that angle uh it, it's still very much uh, the, you know that's still very much uh, on the cards for china so on the one hand in you know, this idea of security energy security included is going to be featuring very very prominently uh, in china china has emerged as one of the you know uh, few buyers of of russian uh, 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 gas uh, throughout 2022 uh, and i think you know the fact that china will be uh, featuring energy security as a real core part of its short and medium term policy goals right uh, as it moves you know into the, sort of this new this the, the, the next decade uh, that that's going to keep them sort of still looking for, for fossil fuels and that that's going to keep you know demand high It's potentially you know you might even see signs of you know stockpiling uh, at the beginning of uh, next year or throughout the course of next year. but on the other hand you know the, the one thing that's often touted is the fact that China is by large you know, the world's largest uh, 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 investor in renewable energy sources and it dominates so many s- segments in terms of manufacturing and renewable energy sources you know like batteries are up and coming. Dominance in, in photovoltaic sales very very well known. So I think in terms of that, you know, the direction of travel in terms of where Chinese policy is allocating these resources and and, and you know capital, uh, you know, know how, people, technical technological knowledge, that direction of travel is definitely not going to change. So I think the assumptions that a lot of people are working to the I uh, international energy agency included are that we're probably going to see a peak in in sort of you know fossil fuel based uh, demand, you know, oil demand certainly. Uh, throughout the course of the next decade. Of course, that's a sort of longer-term perspective. But I think, you know, in the short term, as, as Imer's rightfully mentioned, right, the the, the the impacts of the shocks in 2022 will mean that in the short term, you're probably going to see a lot more de- dependence on fossil fuels before, you know, the, the slower-moving uh, momentum behind renewables starts kicking into gear uh, for China. Thank you everyone for joining us uh, today. I think that brings us to a, conclu- a close uh, for today's podcast episode. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, and of course, to our guests, Brian and Emer for joining. Be sure to follow us on social media to get other episodes in the series at uh, the moment they're published. And if you like what you heard today, hit that like button so it's easier for others to find. Bye for now.